It's so good, it's up for a second time. I'm Scott Colborn. Except no substitutes. I'm Scott Colborn. There we go, a second time. And with me is my buddy Jim Shorty. We are exploring unexplained phenomena. Hey, Jim, how are you? I'm great. How are you? What a great day outside. Um, it is. According to the weather forecasters, we could hit really close to 70 today. Yeah. And that's sort of the uh, the respite. The calm, the calm before the storm, yeah. Before it gets very cold. Yes, and, and then talking with that S word for Sunday. Eli is coming. Well, the, the uh, snow, <laughs> maybe. And the cold is coming, that's for sure. Yep. Hey, I had a great time last weekend. I was in uh, the Laughlin, Nevada area. I'd flown out to Las Vegas, rented a car, and with some friends, we drove down to Laughlin for the Starworks USA UFO Symposium. And running the board back here, thank you to Lou Bratz. He does a show called From Earth to Lincoln. He ran the board. Thanks also to Patrick Monahan, our program director, our very own Jim Shorney. And uh, thanks to Paula Harris, who put on this incredible event, UFOs, ETs, um, remote viewing, and ESP. So we had a full card. It was probably the best conference yet that I've been to. Uh, and her conferences are legendary. So already looking forward to next year. It's UFOs and artificial intelligence. Uh, this is our uh, second program in November. We are or have just celebrated 35 years of broadcast. So we're technically in our 36th year as they say in the biz, the 36th season. Hey, um, we need, ladies and gentle people, we need some prepaid phone cards. Uh, we are basically out, and my, my buddy here and co-host Jim is over here scrambling through things, trying to look for phone cards that have time left. If we've got any at all. <clears throat> so we, we need your phone cards. We like the Zaptel brand. They seem to give a lot of uh, bang for the buck. Pretty reliable. And uh, we've used those for years to help defray the cost of the, the show from KZUM. So if you'd like to contribute in a meaningful way, give us a late birthday gift, if you will. How about a, a, a prepaid phone card from ZapTel to, to us? And it's pretty easy to find me. You can send me the information on the card. Really, really easy. And we sure appreciate that. So once again, this is the official call and the red alert. <laughs> we need prepaid phone cards because we want to continue calling people around the country. You so, bet. Uh, thanks so much. Let's go to our next segment, and that would be Pet Talk with Charlene from the Capital Humane Society. She should be right there. Good morning. Good hey, morning. Charlene, just right on cue. You came right in. <laughs> hey, so what's going on? Well, today we are still having our Give Me a Home adoption promotion, and that's for cats and kittens. So cats that are seven months or older are just $25. And then if you choose a kitten six months and under, it'll be 50% off the adoption fee. Hey, that sounds like a lot of fun. Awesome. It is, and we've got great cats and kittens, just beautiful felines ready to be your fabulous sidekicks. 
Okay, we've got uh, Pet Pictures with Santa coming up. Yep, that's coming up right around the corner, and that'll be Friday the 15th and Tuesday the 19th. And you can call Camp Bow Wow to set up an appointment, and we have all those details on our website. Now, Jim, you, you talked to Charlene off here and said you saw something on the news about them. What was that? That was uh, Mr. Bob Downey was on uh, local TV last night at their, uh, at their wonderful fundraising event they had. So how did that go, Charlene? It was great, and we appreciate everyone who came out to support us. We had our annual dinner. There was a silent auction, a live auction, just a gathering of really like-minded, kind-hearted people. Mm -hmm. And again, we just sincerely appreciate the support. We think it was a big success. Well, Channel 8 did a great story on it, and it looked like you guys were having lots of fun. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay, CapitalHumaneSociety.org. And we're going to start with cats and kittens for adoption. Who's up first? We'll start with Caramel. Caramel. And she's a be- yeah, beautiful green-eyed kitty. Or Caramel, some years. people would say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she is a domestic short hair, kind of a dilute tortoise shell or dilute calico, mm-hmm. I should say. So she's gray and white. And orange, um, very cute. Looking for a calm home with lots of comfy beds where she can snooze and feel loved. Okay, her name is Carmel, but you don't want to lick her <laughs> unless you want fur on your tongue. Yeah, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> not going to touch that. Okay, um, next cat up is Abel. And Abel is a three-year-old neutered male, domestic medium hair, all gray, bright and beautiful, looking for a family that loves fluffy cats. And he will be a very smart sidekick for you. Yep, Abel's up there at the top there, staring intently at the photographer or whatever he or she is holding in their hand. (laughs) We got two great cats. Two cats are better than one. Caramel, uh, Abel, or... And next up is Smalls. And Smalls is a real sweetheart, snug as a bug in the little shoebox there. A neutered male, about eight years old. And uh, he is a front declawed cat, so he'll need a indoor-only home where he's nice and safe and warm and, again, very happy. Okay, there he is, yep. Uh, yeah, what a cutie. Box-o-cat. A uh, box-o-cat, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Okay, Smalls is looking for a great home. Could be your home. If you'd like to go out and take a look at these cats, they are uh, available and they're ready to see you. Here's Shirley with more information on hours today and tomorrow. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 530. Okay, I'm going to click at the top of the screen here. And it just disappeared, but I'll get it back. I know how to do these things. I've had practice. We're going to look at dogs for adoption. And uh, who's up first? We're going to start with Joby. He has such a cute little inquisitive look on his face, a little little tilt to his head. Two years old, a neutered male pit bull mix, about 55 pounds, really fun-loving, loves attention, loves a good belly scratch. Who doesn't, right? <laughs> So uh, he must meet other dogs and must meet children to make sure he's a good fit. But he's really a lot of fun. Okay, Joby's got that inquisitive look. wonder if he's looking right through the camera lens at you. 
Take a look at his picture at capitalhumanesociety.org. His buddy is... Pepe, or P-E-P-E. He is a two-year-old lab mix. Uh, I think I see, like, some border collie in there. Mm -hmm. He looks very intelligent. Um, Can be very timid at first. Um, but definitely warms up. He loves our volunteers because they get him out and take him for walks, and that makes him really happy. Uh, he needs a family with some patience and time to provide him with the training that he needs to be your best pet. Okay, great-looking dog there. I love his markings. He has sort of a uh, mostly white body, a black head with a white streak down the middle. Then it looks like he's got a black tail with a white tip on it. And a very striking dog, Peppy, looking right at the camera saying, hmm, I'm ready for a walk. And are you? You know, a lot of these dogs are great companions for a lot of ways, but you can also take them out twice a day and do that walk thing, and you're going to be feeling great. They're going to love it. So we've got so far Joby and Peppy, and here's Dooley. And Dooley is a five-year-old yellow lab a neutered male, about 78 pounds, so a bigger dog. Um, very clever and charming. Loves to chase the balls. So if you have, you know, a big backyard where he can play fetch, he's just going to be so happy. And labs are intelligent, fun friends. So we hope somebody will be interested in adopting Dooley today. Uh, Doolin Banjos, we got Dooley here waiting for you to see. Cool dog. Take a look at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Joby, Peppy, and Dooley, or Charlene, tell us again hours open today and tomorrow. Please visit us at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. We're open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 530. We've got some uh, colder weather coming up here, so we've all kind of been lulled into this thing of, you know, just easing into uh, winter from fall. Uh, what's a good cold weather tip for Monday or Tuesday? Because it's going to drop down in the teens and 20s. Oh, yeah, definitely. Just want to use good um, common sense about how long your pet needs to be out there. Different pets, you know, can tolerate different temperatures. But when it gets really cold, they don't want to be out there either. So um, make sure that you're using good judgment, um, that you're taking them for walks that are appropriate for the temperature, not real long. Um, It's good to um, wipe off their paws after a walk. Sometimes people are putting things out on their sidewalks already in case there's a little ice. Um, So you want to wipe that off their paws. Um, And then just be sure that you're providing them with water when they're outside. So if it does get really cold, that water could freeze over. Make sure that um, it's something that they can drink, that it's fresh and clean. Okay, Charlene, I hope you have a great rest of the weekend. Thanks so much for all that you do. Thank you. Have a great day. Charlene and friends of the Capital Humane Society make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. And Jim, who are we? Uh, who are we? We are exploring unexplained phenomena. That gave me time to reach across the board and, and push a button. Sure did, and we have a, a guest on the uh, on the phone there whose feet are still a little bit tired. Oh, Paula, how come you're tired? <laughs> because I'm running back and forth and all over. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm still tired, Scott. That was a lot of work. <laughs> You know what? I got back to Lincoln really, really, underline really late Monday night. 
And I slept in Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning, so by Thursday I was starting to feel human again. (laughs) I know what you mean. Well, it's a lot of energy, too. I think it's a lot of good energy, but it's like there was no really time to rest or do very much. But it was such a wonderful, wonderful um, occasion, and I thank you for being there. And I know you, I, you know, you were like at every single solitary talk, so I know you were very stimulated. Yeah, and Paula, thank you so much for the introduction from the stage where uh, we had uh, Steve Berg, a former Omaha, Nebraska resident who's now out in the uh, California area, and he's an actor and comedian, and he was talking about getting started in this whole thing by attending Mm -hmm. an unexplained phenomena conference in Lincoln, Nebraska. And you said, well, there's the guy right out there in the audience. (laughs) And so thank you very much. We were able to connect and he said, I'm buying you lunch next time I'm in Lincoln. Well, that's wonderful. You know, that's all synchronicity. And it was part of what we were working at because the whole conference was about synchronicity, ESP, and about our, you know, senses, you know, and how they extend in consciousness. So that was just a, a perfect example. Here's a guy talking about a, a conference, and there's the organizer right in the audience. So I thought that was pretty amazing. You know, you have to plan these things a long ways in advance. Uh, Paula, you really did a wonderful job. I mean, everybody I've talked to said that, UFOs and remote viewing and ESP, it all fit together so well. Well, it did. And uh, what happens is that it becomes a learning experience uh, because you don't shove together like Bigfoot and crop circles and everything. You walk out of there and nobody remembers anything. This is more of a learning experience because we covered, it's theme-based. My conference is theme-based. So we're, we're concentrating on one thing. And uh, as I mentioned on the stage, uh, you know, the direct thought transfer, or ESP, is how the ETs communicate. So, uh, you know, so it's very ET-oriented, uh, but... You know, everybody can learn something because we're talking about the same thing. And how did you manage to get Uri Geller to take part in this? I mean, you know some pretty interesting people. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, no, he's my friend. No, Uri Uri and I go way back. Uh, He basically, when I was living in Italy, I had him come to Italy and... uh, and he uh, he he and I bonded very much, and I and then I I went and uh, followed him to uh, Ireland. He spoke in Ireland, and then I went to another uh, you know a show he did in the Netherlands. So he knows me really well, and he and and we sat and talked at dinner and so forth. Um, and so he he just when I went to ask him. To do this, he he said, I've never done Skype before. It was obvious he never <laughs> done Skype before, uh, I, but he did an amazing job, and he did it for about 45 minutes, and the audience just loved him, and he tried something new. He's a good friend, and actually, he and Russell Targ talking back and forth was the highlight of the whole conference because... They're the SRI people that, that did the testing on remote viewing in the 70s. Yeah, Russell Targ. I mean, if you if you check out remote viewing, this is a guy whose name comes up quite frequently. To have him there live in person was really a feat, Paula. I so much enjoyed him. Uh, 
he uh, he's got a vision difficulty, and he wears very thick lenses, and uh, he also rides a motorcycle. Oh boy! So he says, "I'm a physicist uh, that looks like uh, what was that word he used to describe himself? Uh, Mister Magoo." I think he said Mister Magoo. Mister Magoo, yeah. <laughs> and, I, Magoo. and I ride a motorcycle. Yeah, well, he he does. I mean, uh, Russell is is incredible uh, as far as you know. He's older, but he he does so many things, written so many books, and as um, uh, and he what he did with the audience was the interaction. He he actually had them do a remote viewing, and people mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. All this is on my Facebook. If people want to see the pictures of Russell with the audience and and so forth. But he enjoyed it, and I think it, it is going to be one of his last appearances because he is older, and we had to drive him from Palo Alto, so he, he came in a car, and uh, you know. But it was it was beyond my expectations as far as the way the conference went. And next year's conference, we're planning it already, and it is on artificial intelligence. Yeah, tell me about that tie-in. How do how do UFOs and artificial intelligence come together? Because there could be artificial intelligence could run the ship, and also there's a lot of cases with robots. My God, even all the science fiction movies, Robbie the Robot, Gort, there that that those are artificial intelligence machines. And I mean, you want to go back to a 2001 Space Odyssey, mm-hmm. Hal. Who who uh, controlled all the uh, you know the human functions on the ship, and and actually ended up killing some of the cosmonauts on the ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it, I think that we need to look at that because I think the world is getting technologically savvy, and we have to look at the implications of artificial intelligence. And it's going to be fun because I bought one robot, and I plan on buying a few more, and I'm going to have them all in the lobby. And people are going to act, uh, interact with the robots. Uh, this is Paula Harris when she's not uh, gallivanting around the world, checking out cases actually by flying or driving there and spending time. She makes her home in Boulder, Colorado. And her website is Paula, P A O L A, Harris, H A R R I S dot com. And we talked about the theme for the 2020 Starworks conference. UFOs and artificial intelligence. If you go to StarWorksUSA.com, there's more information there. That's StarWorksUSA.com. Now, I understand, um, I can't mention a, a cost, but I understand there's going to be DVDs available of the recent conference. Yeah, they are. Uh, they're on my. They're going to be on my website as soon as I get to do it, and uh, they are on Facebook right now. It's the whole entire conference that I. You could get individual, you know, sessions and stuff, but right now it's easier for me to deal with the whole entire conference. Uh, and it, it, you know, people can. They could be part of it because it could be in their home. Mm-hmm. So that's the way that I can, you know, spread uh, what we did and. And and it was amazing. I mean, it'll never happen again. It's one of those once in a lifetime, uh, you know, conferences where I had the great military remote viewers like Paul Smith and Angela Thompson Smith, and Nick Pope talking about the British 
um, remote viewing situation. So I was very lucky. I got the best of the best. Um, I had last week, I had uh, Honor and Tanya, uh, two folks that were prof- are professors uh, at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. And this was their first StarWorks conference. So they were on talking about their perspective. And then we had uh, Reverend Dr. Michael Carter, and then from Minnesota, Dan Tebow. And Dan apologized. Paula said, I missed you guys last year. Gosh, you would have been here, but I broke my leg. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it was great to see him. Minnesota had a big contingent there. and uh, I Yeah, wanted... they, they did. And my, my crew backstage, if you've met them all, are from Minneapolis. They're Minneapolis MUFON, and they are the crew that works the whole conference. Again, Paula, you pulled it off just seamlessly. It was, uh, having been a part of eight of these in the 80s and 90s, I know a lot of the work goes on behind the scenes, and you did so well. So everybody I've talked to has said, my goodness, what a weekend. So now we've got to rest <laughs> up, and we've got another happy. one to plan. And what are, what are the dates in 2020? November, and, and the postcard is up on the, should be on the website November 6th through 8th, uh, and it's already booked, and uh, we already have the speakers. I want to add some more, but, um, you know, people, we have a special where, you know, if they if they get their ticket before February 1st, they save $80. So, you know, we're, we're doing it now because it costs a lot of money to put that on, and uh, and I have international speakers. I have five international speakers next year. So that's going to be amazing. Uh, I have Italy, South America, Mexico, and Canada. I'm, one of the surprises for me from this recent conference was probably Adam Curry. Because I walked in not knowing really much about him and kind of wondering if maybe, gosh, maybe I should do something else. But I'm sure glad I saw his presentation. He was one of the most interesting people, probably the most unexpected. And what he talked about uh, with the ESP stuff is going to be very, very interesting. He has an app he's developing, folks, that that you can download on your phone and take part in this ongoing ESP test. Hmm. Pretty cool. Yeah, well, that's the future, the, these young people. And I've known Adam for a long time. He was in Stephen Greer's film, serious because he comes out of Princeton, the peer lab in Princeton, which is doing the testing on all of this, on consciousness. Uh, and, uh, you know, now he's in Silicon Valley doing apps on consciousness. Now, that's like totally mm. amazing. And your uh, recent uh, experience in the Atacombe Desert in Chile with... Um, Ricardo Gonzalez was filmed by Rob Freeman, and uh, his uh, his co-producer um, McNabb. Mark McNabb. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't think of of Mark's first name, but Mark McNabb. Yeah. And that film was very interesting because uh, uh, Dan Berg, during the the production of this, Dan Berg has a close encounter. Yeah, well, it, you, you can't you can't not have a close encounter in the Atacama Desert in Chile. But anyway, he yeah, I was part of that too because he disappeared and we couldn't find him for an hour. And uh, and he was you know it was very very interesting. If you saw the first film, uh, where 
uh, the, the craft was over our heads for about 13 seconds flashing. Uh, it was amazing. So we did have contact there in the desert. It's there are remote places in the world, and I think that they are more conducive to any kind of contact. Okay, folks, the watchword is keep looking up. You know, we're looking down at our, our devices so much, and we're inside these boxes. Uh, take some time to get out and look up, because it's amazing what you're going to see. Mm-hmm. Paul, again, a heartfelt from all of us. Way to go. Thank you so much for a great uh, weekend in Laughlin, Nevada. Well, thank you, Scott, and thank you for being part of it, and thank you to the radio station for being part of it, and we really appreciate you. Okay, Paula, until next month, take care. Bye-bye. Scott Colborn, that was Paula Harris, talking about the Starworks USA UFO Symposium. And uh, I met so many cool people, just had a blast. Sounds like a blast. My friend Dale from former Lincolnite from Washington oh, Dr. was there. Oh, Dale, yes. And a friend from Lincoln, Suzanne, was there. And I, yes, I know Suzanne. We had just an incredible time. I would do it again in a flash. Well, Scott, before we go to the bottom of the hour break, we had a phone call. Yes. It was our friend Lon. He said to wish you a early happy birthday. Oh, how would he remember that? Well, just because he's a good guy. <laughs> yeah, I sort of celebrated. I'll do it again, but I sort of celebrated my birthday there. Yeah, what a party. Uh, it was a great party. So, um, I'll bet, yeah. My birthday is Monday, 11-11. 11-11, yeah. I, we get to experience a lot of cold on Monday. Not coal, but cold. cold. That's right. Maybe you'll get some snow for your birthday. So um, I guess I've got some stuff queued up. Let's go ahead and do that. Let's do that. I and need to make we'll a come, phone call. We'll come back and, and we'll get our guest on here and we'll drink more coffee here. Yep. Uh, guys and gals, it's sure pleasure being back in Lincoln. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim. And stay tuned for our special guest. Um, he's coming right up, Matthew Swain. He's written a book called Haunted Rails, Tales of Ghost Trains, Phantom Conductors, and other railroad spirits wow. is coming up right after this. Um, thank you, Lon, for the birthday wishes. And I just heard from an old friend, uh, Bruce Cudley. Uh, Bruce, I hope you enjoy your trip and uh, safe journeys. It's great to hear from you, and I will look forward to, to hearing more from you there. So, appreciate that. Let's see, who do we have up next? Oh, we've got this cool main guest. The train guy. This is the first time that we've had uh, uh, Matt Swain on the show. Matt is a journalist. Uh, He works as a research writer at Penn State. And get a load of this for a curriculum vitae. I'm listening. Listen to this. Haunted Valley, the ghosts of Penn State. Mm -hmm. America's haunted universities, ghosts that roam hallowed halls. Haunted Rock and Roll, Ghostly oh. Tales of Musical Legends. Cool. More Haunted Rock and Roll. Ghosts of Country Music, mm-hmm. Tales of Haunted Honky Tonks and Legendary Specters. Uh, this is one I want to get him back on for. Listen to this. Haunted World War II, oh, Soldier yeah. Spirits, Ghost Planes, and Strange Synchronicities. And one of his latest books, the subject of our conversation today, is Haunted Rails. What kid isn't fascinated by trains? Tales of ghost trains, phantom conductors, and other railroad spirits. 
And if we pushed all the right buttons, he should be right there. Hey, Matt, good morning. Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me on the show. Good morning. Matt, where do you make your home? Is it uh, safe to say it's Pennsylvania? Yeah, I uh, live in State College, but I always say I'm from Tyrone, Pennsylvania, which is a town about uh, 20 miles south of State College. And uh, you um, do a lot of writing. I wasn't prepared for this whole list until I dug into your website. And my goodness, I want to... I want to definitely have you back on at some point when you've got time to talk about Haunted World War II. Yeah, I'd love to. What what Um, an interesting topic that you've jumped into. When you you got your start as a writer, writing these books about hauntings and ghosts and things, was any of this prompted by a personal experience of yours, Matt? Well... It was in that I was born on Halloween, and that really is the kind of, the, I think, started it all off. Um, you know, so the way I approach writing this is really as a, a journalist, I, I try to keep myself out of it. I try to get as many voices as I can to tell their stories. So that means skeptics, that means believers, and that means people like me who are open-minded and and but curious not in either camp Uh, what's it been like having a birthday on on halloween it was it is it was and still is the best birthday as far as i'm concerned but for me i just always remember being interested in the occult in the supernatural i read all sci-fi, went to see a lot of horror movies. I was just always, you know, interested in it. And I love ghost stories and I love ghost lore. So when I became a, a reporter for the the Daily Herald, which is a, the paper in my hometown, uh, every Halloween I would try to come up with a, a good, you know, story, feature story. And so one year I decided I would start looking at local ghost legends and there are quite a few, but, mm-hmm. uh, what I've encountered in my career as I've gone down through this journey is a lot of these stories are, are mainly oral. They're passed from people to people. They're not really documented. So I started writing this story and I, I found a lot of ghost stories in around Tyrone, which I classify as ghost lore, just folklore based on spirits and ghosts. And then I looked at, uh, tried to, I remember when I was a student at Penn State, there were a lot of ghost stories in that campus. So I started compiling them over years. I started compiling ghost stories about other universities. Uh, I was asked to write a book about it. I, I self-published the one on Penn State by myself. And, and then uh, they asked, uh, Llewellyn asked me to create this um, book about university ghost stories. And from that point on, I just combine all my interests. I have, I'm interested in, in history, and so I wrote the one about World War II. I'm interested in music history, and I wrote the one about uh, the ones about haunted rock and roll and uh, the ghost of country music. So it's kind of a way for me to um, just explore the things I, I want to explore, uh, but it's become, become uh, quite an adventure with, with uh, all this uh, all these books. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say that by doing this 
writing that you've learned a lot about yourself and about the world? Wow. Yeah, that, that's such a, a great question and such a great point because I started out really writing this as almost a form of entertainment. But as you get into this uh, and as you probe a little deeper, you, I, I came a, away with uh, a lot of a, a completely different point of view. And, you know, as a journalist, I'm, I'm always playing devil's advocate. But with these books, I would say within the second or third one in, especially when I started to do Haunted Rock and Roll, I started to see these stories in a much deeper context than, than just kind of the way I was approaching it as, as future stories about, you know, uh, for Halloween. Mm -hmm. uh, what I found was that there's a lot of debate, a lot of controversy throughout, uh, throughout my books and, and into these stories. I found a lot of different people who were saying a lot of different things with some of the people that I interviewed and a lot of the ghost hunters that I talked to is that, you know, by ex I see things now as there's ghost lore and folklore, and then there are actual encounters that people have with things that they can't explain. And when you talk to those people, a lot of them, their lives have been changed. Their, their philosophies about life have changed. So it's given me a, a different look at these stories, which I think a lot of people look at as kind of fun and frivolous. And, you know, they are that, and there's a lot of fun to them. And I don't mind, you know, talking about that. But there's also a, a deeper element of people who have had experiences. And what I try to do is no matter whether I, be, whether I believe or not, I try to treat every party with respect. Mm -hmm. uh, if you folks have just joined us, this is Matthew Swain. Uh, he's the author of multiple books, makes his home in Pennsylvania. And the book we're talking about today is Haunted Rails, Tales of Ghost Trains, Phantom Conductors, and Other Railroad Spirits. W what was the, the genesis for writing the book Haunted Rails? How did that come about? Sure. Where I'm from in Tyrone, it was the, it's a small town, but it was basically built by the railroad. Mm -hmm. And... My grandfather was an uh, engineer for, I think he started with PRR, and his father actually worked in the railroad. And Tyrone's very close to Altoona, which is kind of the maybe, I don't know whether it's an officially unofficial uh, railroad capital of the world. The whole community sort of rose and fell on, on the railroad. And when I was there, I noticed that there was a lot of ghost lore around um, railroad, railroad facilities, certain train tracks were considered haunted. And I just wanted to, to explore that. Again, I like trains. I like railroad history. So it was a way for me to kind of combine those two uh, passions, those two likes that I had. And what it, usually it starts off with this kind of germ, like, well, I remember this ghost story about this conductor who uh, fell off the, the train and, and had his head severed, and now that area in, in right outside of Tyrone was haunted. I wonder if there are other stories like that, because there, a lot of times the ghost lore replicates itself throughout the country. So I started to explore, and again, I, I found a lot of those 
similar types of ghost stories, but I also found some actual ghost encounters, uh, some really elaborate mythology is involved in it. It's really kind of uh, starts with that single idea, and then it takes a process of researching. Uh, so we've got uh, the subtitle, Tales of Ghost Trains. And uh, mm-hmm. the specter of a ghost train is very, very striking. You know, I myself have seen a ghost. But in my mind, going from a seeing a ghost to an entire train is incredible. Uh, right. Many, many researchers, Matt, talk about these experiences as if there is a video clip that's being played and we're a spectator watching the video play out. We don't know why it's been played. Somebody has pushed the, the, uh, the go button. Any speculation on your part? Yeah, well, I guess I have a lot of speculation on that. And it was interesting when I did the Haunted World War II book, mm-hmm. there was uh, a few stories about ghost planes. And that struck me as a little odd because, like you, I think of ghosts as people. And in this case, you had airplanes, that machines that were ghosts or apparently ghosts. So when I started this book, I started looking around to see if I could find any ghost stories about trains. And in fact, probably one of the most famous ghost stories in the book uh, that's that's been told a lot is uh, a ghost train uh, story about Abraham Lincoln's funeral train. And when Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated, he went on this kind of loopy uh, journey to Washington, D.C., kind of through uh, the Midwest into New York and into Pennsylvania and into Maryland. And when he died, uh, the officials decided they were going to replicate that in reverse. So they, his, his funeral train went through, um, in reverse order, those towns and cities that he's visited. And now there's a legend that if you're out on those tracks where that funeral train uh, went through on the anniversary of the this funeral train ride, you'll see the the ghost train, and it's you know described in really elaborate um, uh, ways. It's, they talk about how you'll be uh, by the tracks, and all of a sudden you'll hear this roar, and you'll see the steam pouring out. A lot of times there's fire coming out of the the smokestack. And as it comes by, you'll see that in the one car, you'll see the, the casket that's draped in a Union uh, flag, and you'll see Union soldiers, ghosts of Union soldiers, in some cases, skeletons uh, surrounding the casket. It's a very elaborate piece of mythology. And so, you know, the question is, for me was, well, has anyone actually seen this? And I had, you know, one blog post uh, that I found, which I actually did use in the book of someone who claimed to see it, said that time stood still. 
I don't know whether that person is is telling us a real story or kind of adding to this mythology because this is how this ghost lore really happens is someone tells a story another person adds it every generation kind of morphs it so in some of the ghost train examples I look at them as pure mythology and that doesn't discount it I think that's important why are we telling these stories I think is another lesson I learned there are other stories from some credible people. The one that I uh, recall is uh, an engineer who was in um, nearly in a head-on collision. And just as soon as the two trains were going to hit, the one train broke off and both the engineer and the fireman looked out the window and saw this kind of eerie train drifting alongside their own train. And when they looked in, there were passengers who seemed very kind of morbid and and uh, grim. And so that story is more like a supernatural encounter as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. So as far as uh, what is causing these, uh, there's a lot of different debate going back and forth. A lot of the skeptics will just say that it's all mythology. Other people seem to say that uh, people who have experienced it or people who are far more knowledgeable uh, about this than, than I am say that this is just a uh, a residual spirit that is uh, occurring over and over again. You know, that, that idea of loss of time seems to, to crop up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Matthew Swain, author of a multiple number of books, including Haunted Rails, Tales of Ghost Trains, Phantom Conductors, and Other Railroad Spirits. Uh, Matt, can I share a story with you from the late and great legendary Martin Caden? Absolutely. Uh, he knew uh, Deke Slayton, the astronaut. And yeah. Deke, Deke was a private pilot. He had a plane that was unmuffled, that was very, very noisy. And uh, uh, Deke uh, uh, passed. And uh, some time went by, several months. And his wife received uh, a notice from the FAA that... Deke was being ticketed. And so she contacted the FAA. He was being fined. And the story went, was that witnesses had seen his plane with the tail markings, the tail number, taxiing on the runway and taking off and landing. Uh, and... Uh, it had violated a number of protocols, and so he was being fined. And she, wow. wrote, she wrote back and said, well, first of all, my husband is deceased, and the plane happens to be in a museum with the engine totally removed from the airplane. And yet witnesses saw his plane taxiing and taking off and landing again. <laughs> That's... Amazing. And, you know, I would like to say that that's rare, but it's not. In fact, uh, after I wrote Haunted World War II, my friend read it and he said, you should do an entire book about these ghost planes. And he had a few different uh, stories. I don't know whether he knew about that, but yeah, it's a, it's a interesting phenomenon no matter what it is. Uh, you live in a part of the country also that um, 
not too far from you is uh, the Gettysburg Battlefield Monument. And Mm -hmm. uh, I just listened to a a podcast last night of Dwight uh, Eisenhower, uh, his grandson, uh, giving a talk here in Nebraska on D-Day, the Normandy landing, and he talked about his grandfather apparently later in life bought a farm in Gettysburg. Yep. Uh, I, I did not know that. Uh, I've had yeah, that's uh, true. Mark Nesbitt on the show several times. Uh, mm-hmm. You mentioned Mark in your book, Haunted Rails. Um, mm-hmm. What an incredible part of the country. I hope sometime to get back there and visit, uh, visit you, visit Mark, and visit Pennsylvania. Oh, that would be great. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we don't have, uh, a, we have quite a bit of uh, haunted history around here. Uh, and you bring up Dwight D. Eisenhower, who I, I mentioned in uh, my book, Haunted World War II, and I think I probably got the story from Mark as well about uh, Eisenhower's farmhouse there is, is one of the most haunted buildings on the battlefield. Uh He's also mentioned in Haunted Rails because there is a museum in Green Bay uh, for railroad uh, history. And one of the exhibits there is the Bayonet 2, I think it is. And that was Eisenhower's personal rail car that he used in England that would shuffle him from meeting to meeting, planning this D-Day invasion. And it allegedly is haunted in one case, one of the uh, workers there, a volunteer, was cleaning it and was using the vacuum, decided to go on break, left, locked up the, the rail car and went to have lunch, came back, and the vacuum was not only moved, it, the cord was wrapped up, and it appeared that someone had vacuumed the uh had vacuumed the carpet as well as brushed out the the sweeper marks, the marks that the tire tires of the vacuum cleaner made. And so this guy thought, well, you know, it's my workers, my my colleagues here, just have him uh, playing a prank on it. So he went to uh, all his friends and his uh, fellow volunteers and asked them whether they did it, and they said no, they didn't have anything. To 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 do about it. But one thing they noticed was that the vacuum tire marks were cleared out. And they said that is exactly how fastidious Eisenhower was, that he insisted that the, once the carpet was vacuumed, that it would also have the, uh, these tire marks brushed out. So it was kind of, uh, kind of interesting that he, he would crop up in this book as well. This is Matthew Swain. There's more conversation yet to come. I'm Scott Colborn, and you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. We're in our 36th, well, 36th, yeah, that too, 36th year of uh, broadcast, and we've got more to come here. Stay tuned, folks, right after this. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena, and uh, Matt's uh, Jim was just talking off air about a friend of his that owns some uh, abandoned right-of-way down by Douglas, Nebraska. Yeah, Matt. Uh, uh, my friend Steve owns about a quarter of a mile of old railroad right-of-way, 
and it's been abandoned for quite a number of years. I think he's the second owner of the property, and the, the tracks are long gone. Any vestiges are long gone. But he's had some interesting experiences down there, and uh, we we never found out found anything concrete about what's going on but uh, the speculation was that it might involve a ghost train and uh two wow. two interesting things about this property to me are number 1 is was a water stop for the steam locomotives mm-hmm. so there was like a 3 or 400 foot water well drilled on the property and to me that's that's just something that's magical. It's uh, amazing that there can be something like that there, especially drilled that long ago. And the second wow. interesting thing is there's allegedly a wrecked locomotive buried on the property because in those days, if you had a wreck, it was just cheaper just to bury it and move on than to try mm. and haul it back to civilization and recover anything. Right, right. You know that it, it really, after writing this, this book, it, it doesn't surprise me. And one thing that I did try to do is when I wrote these, uh, when I wrote this book, I tried to include as many states as I could because, in fact, I think someone did write a book about the railroad ghosts of just Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know it was out until after I wrote it, right? would have taken as more stories from it, but I tried to spread it out. And what I found is that uh, these railroad ghost stories occur throughout the United States, into Canada, uh, around the world, pretty much. I mean, certainly Europe, uh, Scotland, Wales, um, uh, England, all have these ghost stories, uh, ghost train stories. So it's pretty consistent anywhere the Industrial Revolution was a a major factor uh, that we do have these ghost trains. And like I think with you and your friend, most of these ghost stories are still in that oral level. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I couldn't touch a lot of them because I mainly use the Internet and books and newspaper articles, archives, things like that to try to, to suss out these stories. But... You know, I think when we talk about these ghost stories that occur at railroads, we have to ask ourselves why. I mean, why would this industry spawn so many of these tales? And as you know, this is again the things that I think most people write story write books because they know so much, and I write them because I don't know enough. And so I'm always thinking, you know, as I'm writing these stories, like why is this happening? Why why is rock and roll so haunted? Why are there mm-hmm. ghost stories about country music? And what I see, the, the kind of thread that connects everything that I've written, is that there is a raise in the, something causes our consciousness to, to perk up, to raise to a certain level, uh, and our awareness increases. And I think that connects all of those different books that I've written. In the case of railroads, you first of all, and I remember as a as a kid, I would go to my grandparents' house, and my grandfather, who was an engineer, had a lot of these railroad union magazines lying around. And what I noticed was there were a lot of advertisements for prosthetics for arms and legs because mm-hmm. railroad railroading is a very dangerous it business. Is. And so you do have that element, that life and death thing 
where these crashes, a lot of ghost stories occur because of crashes. Some of them occur because of accident victims. There's even murders that are involved in uh, some of these ghost stories that that I, I wrote about in this. But the other thing that the railroad did that I don't think a lot of people consider, and I didn't until I started to write this book, is just the shift in consciousness that the railroad had in, in how we consider time and space. Before the railroad, if you were in Pennsylvania and you decided you were going to move to Nebraska, you're essentially dead to the family. I mean, you they probably will never see you again. Uh, but with the railroad, suddenly people who were an eternity away, somewhat literally, were now just, you know, a, a day maybe away, uh, a half day away, a couple hours away. It really shifted our way of thinking. And not only that, but just the Industrial Revolution how it shaped our lives. So I think there was a huge mythology built up around railroads and trains. And this, you know, I write about how it just felt kind of supernatural when you would see one of these things barreling down the line at you, and especially at night. So I think like your friend, uh, those stories are out there probably a lot more than, than, than I even came close to finding. By the way, Matt, my uh, great-grandparents uh, came from Pennsylvania to the Superior, Nebraska area by covered wagon. I see. Yes. And I have in my dining room right now, I've got the China Hutch that was brought by covered wagon from Pennsylvania. Uh, quite, a, quite an engineering feat to get that all the way back to Nebraska. There's only one pane of glass that got cracked, and sure. I've, I've left it oh. just just like that's, that. That's amazing. And of, of that course, is amazing. as a kid, I remember going to Union Station in Omaha sure. to pick up relatives uh, that were coming in by the train. And that was just an amazing, amazing experience. You, this wonderful, huge stone building, and you'd go down to mm -hmm. the lower level and look out, and you'd just see train tracks as far as you could look, people arriving and leaving on trains. Mm hmm. And it was it was amazing. Matt, can I share another quick rail story before we jump back to the contents of your book? Absolutely, I love them. So I'm a, a young kid in this story, and my dad is a commercial seed technologist. And every Sunday night, he takes reports down to the main post office, which was very near the railroad yards. And uh, he'd oftentimes ask me to go along. So uh, we'd always stop off at the railroad station get out of the car and stand on the platform. And just as a little boy, I looked at these trains and my imagination just would go wild. Mm -hmm. My dad was mm -hmm. so, so kind to, to do that. Well, one day a guy walks up and says, hey, son, are you interested in trains? And I kind of look at my dad and I go, yeah, I am. He said, how'd you like to ride on one? Oh. So this, uh, wow. this gentleman... Uh, and forgive me for my lack of terms that are correct, but is it the uh, engineer that runs the train? Actually, is yeah, that's yeah. Okay, so this gentleman was an engineer. He'd seen Dad and I down there a number of times, and he said, "I want you to come back this Saturday. It's about six o'clock in the morning, and we're going to leave here. We're going to go up on a kind of a deadheader to Asheville, Nebraska, which is about twenty-five miles." Mm -hmm. 
we're going to drop something off up there, then we'll come back. And how'd you like to ride along? So, Matt, he actually had us up in the engine compartment. Oh, I'm so jealous. Riding along. I mean, yeah. that couldn't happen that today with cool. all the regulations and, and things forbidding mm-hmm. that. But back then, you know, in the 1950s, it was okay. So, I remember, you yeah. know, he would say, like, don't touch this lever. <laughs> <laughs> and I always was curious, like, well, what would happen if I did? <laughs> I, uh, I'm reliving some moments of jealousy now because when yeah. I was very young, I was probably four, uh, my brother was two years older than me, and mm-hmm. I think he and my father and my grandfather took a, a train ride, and, and I think they were just moving the engine around uh, – the one lot, but he actually got to sit. There was like a, in this particular diesel engine, there was the cab. And then out front, there was like this gated area. And my brother got to stand there. And my, my dad got to stand in that gated area outside of the engine, which now I think we would just go nuts because it's so dangerous. But then, you know, it was just a different time. But I remember being incredibly jealous about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, our special guest is Matthew Swain. He makes his home in Pennsylvania. He's the author of uh, Haunted World War II, A Haunted Rock and Roll, Ghosts of Country Music, America's Haunted Universities, and the book that's the subject of our conversation today, Haunted Rails, Tales of Ghost Trains, Phantom Conductors, and Other Railroad Spirits. You know, while I've got the information up here, let me also... Um, get you the website. You know, Matt, for some reason, I beg your pardon, I didn't copy your website down on my newsletter here. Is it your oh, that's okay. personal it's, last it's name? MattSwain.com. Okay, M-A-T-T-S-W-A-Y-N-E, MattSwain.com. Yeah. And his book is published by Llewellyn, so you can go to Llewellyn Publishing and find... Uh, Haunted Rails, as well as a number of his other books here. Uh, tell me about the author Philip K. Dick and his oh, yeah. paranormal ex- experience. Yeah, so Philip K. Dick, and I've always been a fan of Philip K. Dick, the sci-fi writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a little shocked when I was reading, uh, I think I was reading the biography uh, of Philip K. Dick written by uh Philip K. Dick's, I think, second wife. Um, In any event, uh, she told this story that when they were living in this area in California, I think it's the Santa Ana area, it was uh, the stories of of railroad ghosts were pretty prevalent in that area. There was, it was a heavily railroaded area. The railroad industry was pretty prevalent there. And uh, there was one ghost story near where they lived, uh, and this is a bit of ghost lore, where uh, an engineer uh, was a single father. His daughter ran off with another with a with a young man uh, and eloped, and the father was of course furious. And the story is he was. Uh, driving the his train throughout the countryside looking for his daughter in this scoundrel that that took her from him wailing on the whistle and just 
incredibly angry and that even years and years later, people said that, that you could still hear that whistle and you could still uh, hear that, that steam coming in the rumble of the train. And according to Philip K. Dick's wife, uh, Philip K. Dick said that uh, many nights he could not sleep because he would hear this train whistle and it kept him up. And he said it was the it was a ghost train, that it was one of these trains that uh, used to go through this area. So he becomes one of my uh, subjects, uh, one of my witnesses of uh, of a railroad ghost. Now, there are, uh, you know, his wife uh, does say that she thought it was just the wind uh, in making that sound, but and coupled with Philip K. Dick's uh, insomnia that was causing this. But it's still an interesting story. Um, I'm going to have you now, uh, and I imagine you've got a copy of your book handy there, Matthew. Uh, you've got 50-plus uh, stories in here. I'd like to have you pick out one of your favorites and tell us about that. Yeah, you know, uh, one of my favorites is, and I'm, I forget exactly what I titled it. Let me. Oh, I'm sorry to put you on the spot one. here. Oh, no, no. I, I just forget what, I mean, I can remember what, but I don't know where it is in the book. But uh, it's a it's an interesting story about um, uh, a, a ghostly happening that, that happened in a, a little town called Austin, Pennsylvania. Not too far from where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, and the story goes that there was a uh, rail yard and the workers in the, in the rail yard noticed this, this, I guess you would call him a creepy man walking around, very suspicious. He was described as being abnormally tall. He was wearing all black. And the way that they described how he walked among the railroad cars was interesting. They said he slithered. Uh, and they would go and try to chase him off. They would get very close to him. And then with incredible speed, he would run away from them. And again, slithering through all these rail cars and, and up into box cars and out the other side. It's, it's quite the story. And then suddenly he disappears and he doesn't come back to the rail yard, probably much to the relief of these railroad workers. But it wasn't too long after that that a dam above the town, which was uh, around the lumber mill that they used, shifted and then broke. And uh, it caused a terrific flooding in that area and killed several people. And after that, they never saw this this weird-looking man in black. And it's one of my favorites because it reminds me first of the Slender Man uh, uh, stories that, that were pretty popular, you know, maybe five five years ago or so. Uh, and that was sort of an internet phenomenon. But the description of this ghost with Slenderman is interesting. But it also reminds me of the Mothman tragedy mm-hmm. where this town was experiencing this paranormal phenomena and then the, the bridge collapses. So that's one of my favorites just because, uh, first of all, I, I found it in an old, old newspaper, local newspapers, and I'm kind of a uh, newspaper buff. And so it was kind of cool on that level, but also I think the facts around it were fascinating. And again, it, to me, it's one of these cases, like as a journalist, you're always looking for multiple eyewitnesses, similar stories, and in which case this, this goes above 
the typical ghost lore that that you, I wrote about in this book. Uh, railroads, as you point out, uh, really caused a shift, uh, not only in our country, but around the world, because formerly people traveled by, you know, horse, wagon, buggy, or foot, and now they had a method of moving back and forth. They also had a method then of moving things like uh, grain. And so we benefited from in the Midwest here with the railroad, of course, because a lot of those cars went back carrying grain that our farmers were raising, and it helped them reach new markets and, and sell more of their products and things. Uh, I remember Jim and Matt as a little boy uh, going down to see my grandparents in Superior, Nebraska, and there was a highway that their farm abutted, and just on the other side of that highway, probably 100 yards, was the railroad track. I remember late at night laying there, and you could hear clear off in the distance the sound of the train coming. Mm-hmm. And there was something just magical about that. You were wondering about that, and it was getting closer and closer. And then you could actually, when it was uh, parallel to the the farmhouse, you could feel the vibrations and the rumble in the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really an incredible experience. I remember that and also the sound of the first time that I ever heard coyotes. And my oh. grandfather coming and sitting by my bed and talking to me about how these were animals that lived out there that would call back and forth, and we sat in the darkness and and listen to these coyotes call back and forth. Magical times. Yeah, yeah. I uh, so even in Tyrone right now, when I was living there, just uh, you know maybe ten, I guess it was longer than that, fifteen years ago. Uh, you could hear the the trains coming around the one bend, and they would always let the whistle go and my wife, my girlfriend at the time said, how can you sleep? And I always found it very reassuring. To me, it meant Mm -hmm. that people were moving, that things were getting to the station, that, that, you know, people were going out on adventures and travels. It never bothered me, but it, uh, it, to me, it's a reassuring sound. And and if I have one more chance, just a, a second to talk about another ghost story that I, I remember is the, oh, please the do. story about uh, the story about Malvern, uh, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. This is a really fascinating story for me because uh, there was a, a ghost story of a certain area of, of tracks uh, right near Malvern. And it, the ghost stories became so numerous that the railroad station, the railroad company secretary started to write them down and kept track of them. And almost all the stories were the same. A person would be walking by the tracks and see these weird orbs dancing around, sometimes described as blue, green, red lights. Uh, and the, the one Irish worker said that's the ghost of these Irish workers who were, who were killed and, and, were buried there and they were never given a Christian a Catholic funeral. So uh, this secretary passed those stories on to uh, his two grandsons who were kind of amateur anthropologists and they set about getting connections with university anthropologists, doing a dig in that area and sure enough they found that it was a mass grave. Oh my goodness. Uh, and that 
um, they think that either these, uh, they assume they were Irish workers, either they died because of um, uh, cholera or that they were at, some of them were actually murdered. So it's, uh, again, it's one of those cases where for years they thought this was just kind of superstition and ghost lore, but there actually is something to it, whether that somehow affects the collective memory, whether it affects our consciousness, um, or, or whether it's just, just how accurate and how long lasting this ghost lore can, can continue. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, being of Scottish ancestry, uh, let's talk about, on page 19, a time-traveling ghost train. And uh, this is from South Wales. Yeah. Yeah, and this is, uh, this feels interest. this is interesting to me because it uh, deals with these two fishermen who are out far, far away from civilization uh, in a rugged land, and they're going to, they have a favorite trout stream, and they're out fishing. And on the way back, after a good day of fishing, they start to hear this strange noise. Uh, it sounds like steel. It sounds like uh, thunder coming their way. And then they hear a shrill whistle, and they can hear the steam, and they recognize it as a, a train coming towards them. Uh, the problem is, there's no trains in that area. The railroad hasn't been built out that far. And yet, years later, maybe decades later, that's the exact spot where the railroad company decided to build a line servicing that area. So it almost feels like a kind of a time-traveling train mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, the the uh, description is very uh, interesting because he's lighting a pipe, one of these fishermen, and he starts to hear this rumble. It gains such intensity that it knocks the pipe out of his hands. A A herd of horses are also hearing this rumble, and they are spooked, and they run away. And uh, years later, at that precise location, they decide to uh, build a tunnel that comes out of of the hill for a railroad line. And so he mm-hmm. was he was actually seen part of that many, many years beforehand. Mm. Wow. Yeah, and it it feels very apocryphal to me because of the you you feel that there is a uh one way of life, this rural farming I would take it, uh fishing type of life that is now going to be changed forever by the coming of the railroad. So the, the book has got not only stories about trains, but there's also stories about train stations, mm-hmm. um, haunted cabooses. And uh, what was the story in there about the particular caboose that was said to actually shake, tremble, vibrate, jump on the tracks, and actually propel itself without an engine being connected? Yeah, that was, I think that was the one in, in Kentucky. And this, you know, had, again, I think I found this in an old newspaper, but uh, these, um, there had been such a reputation that developed around this caboose because it would, in certain areas, when it was completely still, when the train was completely still, it would shake and jump 
And at one point, uh, it was in uh, a rail yard all by itself, and it flew down the tracks. It went up an incline and then cascaded off the tracks is where the, the workers finally found it. It wasn't propelled in any way. It wasn't being carried by anything. None of the other cabooses were going lickety-split all by themselves around the rail yard either. So that's one of the, the ghost stories about cabooses. And I actually found quite a few of those. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that, in that case, I think it was related to an accident. A person was hit by a train uh, when that caboose was on that train. But the, the other thing about the, the caboose is that it for for decades... Uh, it served as almost like a home for for the uh, train crew. That's where they did business. That's where they would sleep. So it's about as close as a railroad can get to a haunted house. And so I think that's why that's one of the reasons why there are so many ghost stories about cabooses. Uh, this is Matt Swain, the author of multiple books, including Haunted Rails. And uh, his website is, uh, is it Matt or Matthew for the website? I think it's mattswain.com. Uh, S-W-A-Y-N-E. Okay. And uh, there's a lot there, as well as links for uh, the books, including that one I want to get you back on for Haunted World War II. Soldier yeah. Spirits, Ghost Planes, and Strange Synchronicities. Okay, let's uh, let's do another story here. Let's see here. Um, how about talking about some of the lights that people have seen in or near um, tracks? In or near where? Uh, railroad oh, tracks. Oh, railroad tracks. Some yeah. of the ghost lights yeah. or quote unquote spook lights. Yeah, that's. Um that's actually a much more frequent uh, occurrence. And I only wrote, I think, about mainly two, two of the most famous. Uh, uh, the one is the, the Mako light, which is in North Carolina. And this is somewhat famous because uh, Grover Cleveland was on a tour through North Carolina, and he was wondering why the the conductors had two lamps to signal uh, the other trains, uh, and they used a series of, of lamps instead of just the, the one. And the explanation kind of uh, took him aback. It was because of this ghost light that typically there would be one conductor swinging the lamp. But in this area, this ghost light had been seen so frequently that they actually thought it was a real conductor. And uh, there are a bunch of – there's another fascinating story that said uh, the soldiers from north uh, – from Fort Bragg, which is nearby where these uh, lights have been seen, uh, were out on maneuvers, and they saw this ghost light, and they actually engaged it with a machine gun. So hopefully it wasn't Jeez. just a conductor wow. out there, wow. uh, you know, doing his job. But there are a lot of stories, and apparently one of the stories that – that comes to the top on why this is happening is uh, it was, it's the ghost of this conductor, Joe, Joe Baldwin, who was a heroic conductor who died uh, in that area and that they're seeing him still walking around. And a lot of times you'll have these railroad stories 
that they uh, revolve around these spook lights. And the reason then the, the, the people come up reasons that most of the reasons are that the conductor was decapitated and he's looking for his head. So that's the Mako light story. There's another one, uh, Paulding light, which is in Paulding, Michigan. And, and again, it's, uh, apparently related to a, um, a, a story about, uh, either an accident or someone died there. And, and these people, the witnesses claim that it's related to this, this these railroad, this railroad brakeman. And, you know, correctly, uh, Matt is a open-minded skeptic, just as Jim and I are. So when you've got reports of um, uh, ghost lights around railroad tracks, the first thing that you do um, logically is you try to rule out a natural or mm-hmm. prosaic explanation. That's the first thing you do. And so in some of these cases, uh, people have gone to great lengths to to try to attempt to show that when there were cars nearby that were either brake lights coming on and or their headlights coming down a stretch of road, that those were what people were seeing. And then in some cases, um, it was pointed out that these lights were being seen a long time before the road was built and there were automobiles Mm -hmm. in the area. Um, This reminds me of the... uh, a famous UFO case where one of the uh, closed-minded skeptics in December of 1980 proposed that what the men were seeing in Rendlesham Forest in England was not a series of hovering or landed UFOs, but they were actually seeing the Orford Ness Lighthouse, uh, mm-hmm. as if the men that served there on the base weren't immediately Never familiar with the lighthouse every yeah. single night they were out there and knew where it was and the lighthouse would not move through the trees <laughs> uh, leading them on kind right. of a, a goose chase but uh, so you know right. t- to matt's credit he's got um the skeptical arguments the counter arguments in there and i think we always have to consider those uh because that helps better inform us of, about what may be um Pick another story, uh, Matt, and when we come back from the bottom of the hour break, we'll talk more about your book, Haunted Rails. Sounds uh, good. Hope you're enjoying it. I've got a cup of coffee here and enjoying the conversation myself. This is Matthew Swain, and his website is mattswain.com. Lots of information awaits you there at mattswain.com. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorney. Stay tuned. We're going to be right back. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Next week's guest is Nick Redfern. He's got uh, multiple books out. The one we're going to talk about is The Alien Book, A Guide to Extraterrestrial Beings on Earth. Big schedule coming up. I've got guests coming up uh, being scheduled down for January as as we do this. So... Lots of great programs coming up. Our 36-year broadcast. And there's more good coffee that awakes us, Mr. Jim Shorney. Oh, great. (laughs) I'm just here for the coffee. Uh, Great conversation with Matthew Swain this morning. First-time guest. Uh, Matt makes his home in Pennsylvania. And the book we're talking about is Haunted Rails, Tales of Ghost Trains, 
phantom conductors, and other railroad spirits. Matt, can you share with us another story from your book? I would like to go uh, do another uh, Pennsylvania story, and this one happens at the Railroaders Memorial Museum in uh, Altoona, Pennsylvania. And, and this story has been kind of passed down over the past, oh, I'd say 10, 15 years. Um, but it starts with this former finance director who is um, staying late, and uh, he has an office on the fourth floor of the museum. And he decides he's going to quit for the day, and he gets in the elevator. And typically, at this time of, of day or in the evening, he's all alone in the building. But when he walks into the elevator, he looks over uh, the, to the other side of the elevator and sees there's a man there dressed in somewhat dated clothes and that his back is turned towards the finance director. And then slowly this guest uh, starts to turn around and then he looks over at the shoulder, uh, over his shoulder at the finance director and you know, the finance director did not, never saw this guy before. Mm -hmm. And then this this uh, figure starts to shimmy electronically, they said, electrically, and disappear. And then later, uh, he had started to tell people uh, at the museum that he had this experience. They took him to a painting, or a, I'm sorry, a picture in the museum, and he pointed out the gentleman that was in the elevator with them. And it turns out that this is the guy named Frank that supposedly haunts the, uh, the museum and his, uh, he's been reported in several other different ghost stories. So I think that's kind of a cool one. Wow. That is cool. Yeah. To be on an elevator, especially when you're not expecting anybody else to be in the building and to have yeah. this guy that, you know, a lot of times ghosts are described as, again, part of this um, this video clip. You know, we're the spectator, mm -hmm. we're watching them, they're not aware of us. But oftentimes we get these stories where the, the ghost appears to be aware of the people that are mm -hmm. there. In this case, how would you like to be on an elevator and have this guy slowly turn his head and look at you? Wow. I have to be honest, as much as I have always, you know, born on Halloween, uh, write these ghost stories, I am very easily creeped out, and I don't <laughs> think I would want to be there. Yep. Yep, my, my, I've talked about it, so I won't go into great length here, but my, my ghost sighting that I had uh, in 2007 in Estes Park came totally out of the blue. And uh, Really? You know, it's something that I will never forget, and it kind of got me started in a, another venture that I'm involved in. So, um, these ghost trains are from basically all over the world. People mm -hmm. that have experienced um, railroads, railroad lines, the construction, there are these stories that exist uh, literally all over the world where there have been railroads, and um, the construction of the lines, there are stories that abound. Uh, tell us about the silver pylon, silver pylon, the haunted steel yeah. bullet train of Sweden. Yeah, that was a, a specially made uh, train in uh, Stockholm, and it had a very distinctive silver color. 
it wasn't on the line very long, and it was uh, taken off the line and replaced by some other uh, types of rail cars that uh, had, you know, normal coloring. But yet, even years later, after this was uh, this was uh, uh, taken off the line, people had claimed to see this silver car going through the streets of Stockholm. A lot of times associated with the fog. And they would watch this silver car kind of disappear into the fog. There were some other stories uh, about this um, that I really couldn't confirm. But there are stories about people who would actually climb on this ghost train. uh, And that when they would uh, get off the the train, they would be in a different part of the city than they originally had hoped to, to go. That it was somehow on a different line. Wow. My uh, my haunted, I don't know if it's haunted, but my subway story, Matt, happened when I was visiting my friend uh, Bob Stewart back in New York City the summer of 1970. We had gone out and we had gone to maybe the Electric Circus or some nightclub and mm-hmm. we had been drinking quite a bit. It was very, very late or early in the morning. And we got on the subway to go back to where Bob lived. Um, there was a guy that got on and sat right across from us. So only three of us, Bob and I on one side, this guy on the other side. And, uh, you know, we look at him, he looks at us, and we're kind of just, you know, the train lurches. And as the train lurches, I happen to glance over and I see his sweatshirt riding up and he's got a handgun stuck in his back pocket. Oh, wow. And so I'm, I'm kind of going like, Bob, Bob, the guy across from us has got a gun in his back pocket. Don't look. And of course, Bob looks. <laughs> of course. And the, you know, we're, we've got this expression in our face. The guy looks over and now he knows that we know that he's got a gun in his pocket. Yeah. And so he looks at us and takes the hem of his sweatshirt and pulls it way down over his back pocket. <laughs> like, there. <laughs> now you happy? And so yeah. the, the next stop uh, was about a mile away from where we had to go, but Bob and I were off that subway at the next stop. And uh, Yeah, I we, that was a long ride. We found a, a police officer at the top of the stairs and told him there was a guy in the subway with a gun and he said, how long ago? And we said, probably three or four minutes. And the guy said, well, we'll never catch him now. He's on down the line someplace. So, Yeah. Well, the, the stories, uh, one thing that I did notice is that in England, there are a lot of haunted subways. And I think it's related to the fact that those subway systems, or the tube, as they're usually called mm-hmm. there, especially in London, were used in World War II as bomb shelters. And the one uh, was used as a bomb shelter, and, and um, they did a, a drill, uh, of a, an air raid drill. And during that drill, apparently a mother and a daughter slipped at the bottom of the, the steps, and it caused a chain reaction where everyone behind them or in front of them started to fall. And I think like 170 people died wow. in this horrible, horrible accident. Uh, and since then, that that subway has been haunted, and people claim to see, to hear those shrieks, and to hear that 
that uh, cascading accident happen. You know, sometimes on Facebook, I'll see these uh, these video clips, and I've got a, a couple that I watch and that are very, very fun. I happened just to let this thing play, and there was a clip that showed a subway train coming into a, a station. Somebody's filming this, and a guy walks up to the edge of the platform. He's got his back turned, and he takes a step, and he falls backward onto the track. And wow. Somebody actually jumps down, grabs him, and basically throws him up on the platform and rolls up there just as the train comes through. My God. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, and again, I think that, that underscores the danger of, of railroading oh, yeah. subways and, and just why maybe we do talk a lot about this paranormal phenomena surrounding it. When I was a kid... Um, we had a house in a um, newer part of, of Lincoln that, you know, basically uh, vacant lots or farm ground around us. It's now, of course, been all built up. And about a half mile away was a train track, and it was visible from our front. So sometimes I would hear a train coming through and look, and I would see the rail cars, and a, a few of them had doors open. And when I looked closer, I saw there were people either standing or seated in the doorways. Mm. And so I asked my, my parents, you know, I'd never seen people like that traveling on a train like that before. What were they doing? And they said, well, these are people that other folks call hobos, that they're riding, uh -oh. <laughs> riding the rail. Uh -huh. And so I imagine there's probably also stories of famous hobos. Yeah, as a matter of fact, there's a, a museum, uh, I think it's in Ohio, that has uh, the ghost of uh, one of the, the most famous um, hobos, and it, his name is escaping me, but he had been elected king of the hobos many years, and he apparently haunts that, that museum. So, yeah, there's, there's that whole aspect of it, too. Matt writes, Jim, in the book about uh, these cabooses that when they uh, began to be disused, that some enterprising people said, well, that makes a great cabin, vacation home. Mm -hmm. And so these were purchased. And there are a number of these cabooses that are now being used as part of bed and breakfasts. Yeah. Kind of neat that they're yeah. decorated for the, the time period and things. And apparently there's a few of these that Matt writes about in the book that are actually haunted, where people can go mm -hmm. and spend a night in a haunted caboose, and oh, cool. who knows what's going to happen there. Yeah, that's that's true. I, I came across uh, quite a few of those. Um, I think there's uh, the one is uh, the Canyon Motel, supposedly haunted by a, a conductor, and I think the Canyon Motel uses these cabooses as... Uh, places interesting places where where people can stay so that's haunted by a conductor there's just uh, uh several other across the country that uh you know uh, the featherbed inn i think is another one and in that case people hear footsteps uh objects disappear and then reappear so so you know i mentioned earlier that these cabooses tend to be the more haunted pieces of railroad property and when you turn them into uh, hotels or bed and breakfasts, you might expect those those ghosts to, to linger, and they seem to have done that. 
Well, well, sure. A caboose is basically a rolling cabin. The the person yep. that manned the caboose ate there. They slept there. That you know, it's a tiny house, I guess you might say. And we've actually got right. one uh, my, at my hometown at the end of Main Street. They've got one on display because uh, Plattsmouth, Nebraska, was a big railroad town. And as yeah. far as I know, it's just a museum piece, but uh, it's still cool. I've cool. been looking in the book here for the, uh, maybe you can help me find it. It's the one uh, engineer Britt Crafts heroic deeds outside of Atkinson, Kansas. Remember that story, Matt? Yeah, I think I may have mentioned that uh, earlier. Um, but there, so there's two similar stories. But Britt Craft was uh, uh, on one train. Uh, I think he was the engineer of one train that crashed, and it crashed because a lot of times you would have these prairie fires, and the prairie fires would catch the bridges mm-hmm. on fire. So this train crashed into this burning, what was left of the bridge. And a lot of people, uh, the crew survived, but then Britt went in to rescue the passengers in this train that were stuck in this, this fire, uh, and, but he perished in it. And there's stories about, uh, later a reporter went and talked to people, and the one person said that uh, he had seen, uh, he was on a, yeah, this is a. He was on a, a a train going through that same area, and he thought he was going to be in a head-on collision. And then the the vehicle shifted to the right or to the left and ran parallel his his uh, train. He looks out the window and he sees um, what looks like the ghost of Brit Craft uh, piloting the other the other train. I think this is the one that has a very interesting dis- description, whereas the one ghost train, you saw the full uh, train and the passengers. I think in this one, he says that it looks like the outline, like someone had taken chalk and drew a picture or of a, a chalk drawing of a, of a train. Really kind of interesting and weird. That reminds me that when we were kids watching some of the early Japanese attempts at animation and, and uh, special effects, mm-hmm. you always knew when the monster was going to get somebody because they had a blue line that showed up around them. Mm. And if they had I a blue line, the monster was going to get them, you know? Oh, and, I didn't know that. Do, you, do yeah. either of you guys recall the story, the legend of the the Nazi train that was filled with gold and loot and things. I've, yeah. I've heard of that, yeah. That was somehow lost. And they wondered a, yeah, they're still looking for was, it. If it was buried, what happened to it? There's, yeah, there's, about two years ago, there were yeah. uh, some anthropologists, archaeologists who, who claimed to us to that they found it, but then it, it sounded like it was a hoax. But there's there's still active efforts to try and find this train. Mm-hmm. Well, Matt, I want to thank you very much for taking time from your Saturday morning. I don't know if if you're uh, welcome. Your favorite football team is playing today or not, or if you got a dog in the hunt. But uh, uh, we have a new. Well, co- Penn State is ranked fourth, so we'll see see what happens. We have a new coach uh, who's in, uh, I think, his second year here, and we're mm-hmm. having some difficulties in Nebraska to regain the old days of glory. Um, mm-hmm. I think to help us, we should go back to the early 
moniker or a nickname for the Nebraska football team. We're now called the Cornhuskers. Do you know what we used to be years ago? Get this. I don't. Talk about striking fear into the hearts of the opposing players. <laughs> we were known as the Bug Eaters. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I have, I have a quick story for you that one of the ghosts on the Penn State campus is allegedly Old Coley, the, uh, who was a mule who helped found, helped uh, with the original founding of the of the university and there was a there was a possibility that we could have been the Penn State Nittany Mules so <laughs> oh that's that's hilarious well that's always a great team to look for every season they seem to just have a great team so Matt uh, if if things work out uh, on your end we'd love to have you back I'd love to be able to talk about haunted World War II. Uh, and yeah. in the meantime, I wish you well with your writing career. Thank you very much for taking time to be with us. Thank you. I had a great time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Matt Swain, if you go to com, that's his website. You'll also find Matt Swain on Facebook, the publisher of the new book, Haunted Rails, Tales of Ghost Trains, Phantom Conductors, and Other Railroad Spirits is Llewellyn Publishing. Stay tuned for Beta Radio. They're coming up next. And they're, they're out in the there green room. doing uh, jumping jacks and getting warmed up here. Doing show prep. So um, just a matter of minutes for those guys and gals. Jim, what are you doing for the rest of the day? Uh, Enigma tonight in Syracuse, <clears throat> Nebraska. In Syracuse, huh? Yeah. Interesting... Uh, UFO sighting one morning outside of Syracuse. Oh. I knew mm-hmm. a former teacher at a high school, and uh, she was walked into McDonald's one afternoon. One of her students said, oh, Katie, I've got to tell you what happened last night. And so he was given permission to leave the counter where he's working, and he breathlessly told her that, he and another friend and a young woman had been driving back from Kansas City. They were on Highway 2 the night before, middle of the night. They'd just gone through Syracuse when they saw a bright light off to the side of the highway. And they stopped thinking that maybe somebody had gone off the road. They got out and looked, and there was this disc-shaped UFO hovering over the field. And then they jumped back in their car and hightailed it out of there and stayed up all night and were just mm. wired, so... She was the, the next person they told about that. Well, I, I guess you might say I'll be seeing identified musical objects. Yep. Keep your eyes open tonight in Syracuse. You bet. Jim, it's great to be here working with you. Great show. Lots of fun. Thanks again for covering things last week. Uh, thanks to Lou Bratz. And that Lou did a great job. Board. Thanks, Lou. Our program director, Patrick Monahan. And it was a great time. Now we're back. we 35 years strong. And I think there's another show coming up. We got a couple of sharp young folks here in the studio just waiting to take our place. It's fun to say, beta radio. Get those bees out there, huh? You can do that. Thanks so much, folks, for listening. Thanks to Matt Swain. I'm Scott Colborn. Until next week, Walk in Beauty.